0: that's probably been the hardest that's the hardest part of the job is knowing that someone has been away from their loved one and family for so long when they could have enjoyed their last days not struggling like they do and I think that's just because people don't know an alternative people rely a lot on what they think is best and I think the general thought is what's best is to commit to treatment until till the end.
1: Hello, my name is Matthew Sortino and welcome to Moments of Clarity. Today I'm speaking to Rachel Rosea. Rachel is a nurse who works in an oncology and haematology ward in a Melbourne hospital. Rachel has dedicated her life to specialising in providing unbelievable care to patients battling cancer. She has also worked in palliative care. I wanted to talk to Rachel for a number of reasons. Firstly, she is incredibly passionate about her work and, more importantly, her patients. Secondly, anybody that knows Rachel knows she is the embodiment of happiness, and in 2020, happy people are worth their weight in gold. And finally, we hear so much about our frontline health workers, but very rarely do we actually get to find out about their personal experiences on the ground. When deciding who to talk to for this podcast, I had many ideas. I have been seriously disturbed in recent years about the conspiracy thinking that has overtaken logic and made a mockery of our experts and integral institutions. Misinformation, both malignant and ignorant, is absolutely rife, and I do not always know the best way to approach people that find themselves in the rabbit hole. As a society, we are currently facing a global pandemic, and in Victoria, we are facing a second wave. Yet people still believe in unfounded, and in many cases, ludicrous ideas about the origins and purpose of the virus. My initial reaction was to get a scientist to explain the virus, or an expert to pick apart conspiracy theories. But who does that help? That information can be found anywhere and the information war does not need any more ammo. So instead I thought that if anybody wants to deny the existence or seriousness of the virus or get involved with warped ideas linking the virus to 5G, government control or the anti-vax movement, that is their prerogative. I will not submit myself to such poor ideas. So why am I talking to Rachel? Rachel is a frontline health worker. She is putting herself in harm's way every day to deliver world-leading care to people suffering the hardest battles of their lives. She does this knowing that she could get sick at hospital, but even more importantly, she has made the selfless decision to change her entire life to ensure she does not infect any of the vulnerable people she works with. COVID-19 is deadly, but we often downplay how serious it is. But to people with cancer, there is no bigger threat to their recovery than this global pandemic. Not only will they become seriously ill if they contract it, If we do not get the virus under control, our hospitals will be overwhelmed, leading to many people unable to get treatment. This is how serious this is. Instead of just going on this rant and letting you think about some imaginary nurse or cancer patient, I thought I would delve deep into one of the amazing people that you can support by listening to advice and respecting our health workers. I think after listening to Rachel, you will be an advocate for an evidence-based response to the virus grounded in love for our nurses. In today's conversation, Rachel and I start by discussing COVID-19, but quickly move to the daily life of a nurse, working in a cancer ward, death and dying, bringing joy to others, shifting perspectives and much more. On another note, I have some news of my own. My amazing partner, Lauren, is pregnant. We are so excited and could not be happier to have a baby girl on the way in December. We are starting a renovation and as teachers, we are busy working remotely and it is for these reasons that I have moved from weekly episodes to fortnightly episodes. If you have listened to every episode and are disappointed to have to wait two weeks before the next one, thank you for being so dedicated. I love your commitment. If you are tuning in for the first time or were a late starter, there is a growing back catalogue of episodes for you to explore. I would love you to have a listen to the amazing guests I've had, and if you like the podcast, you can subscribe, share it with your friends and family, or review it on iTunes. Okay, it is now time for the podcast, so without further delay, I bring you Rachel Rosea. Rachel, welcome to Moments of Clarity.
0: Thanks, Matt. Good to see you.
1: It's great to see you too. And right now, you've got a big smile on your face, which is, you know, not different from most uh, guests. No one comes here angry or upset to be here, but... One of the key reasons i've um re- I'm really excited to speak to you is because of your bubbly personality and your um, your laughter and happiness every time I get to see you. So I want a bit of happiness in this time of um of uncertainty especially here in Victoria.
0: That's fair enough good so do I no. <laughs>
1: <laughs> so uh, we'll start there. Well, before we get into what's happening right now with all the coronavirus and and you being a nurse and being in that sector, what's something that's happened recently that has made you happy that has filled you with joy?
0: Oh, it's probably and I think a lot of people are sharing this same newfound talent has been perfecting some homemade bread (laughs) that is making me very happy. So, what's your secret? Oh, change the recipe each time.
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> really hot oven? I've done some no knees and some knees. They've worked out well and a good sourdough starter.
1: Oh, awesome. And and you've held on yep. to that and you're using that continually? Still
0: alive. Still, Still alive.
1: alive. What makes that such a joy for you to be involved in?
0: Oh, I think I'm not great in the kitchen, so it's been it's been something that I've had the time to actually follow a recipe and see Something actually turn out, and then it's just something that we can all share in the house. And it's when it comes out fresh hot in the oven on a weekend, and then we all sit down, do the Saturday morning quiz. It's nice. It's a ritual. It's become a ritual.
1: Nice. Can you introduce yourself and what you're doing at the moment, job-wise, career-wise?
0: I'm working as a nurse at the moment. I work on a, a cancer ward, dealing with patients with either haematological or oncological conditions in Melbourne. So living living here and working here, I'm originally from the country, so I've moved moved to Melbourne for work. Uh, moved here about five years ago to pursue my nursing career.
1: Yeah. Did you always want to be a nurse? Did, and, and did you, once you wanted and realised you wanted to be a nurse, was... Being on a, like a cancer ward, something that you were already interested in, or uh, maybe inspired you originally to become a nurse, or was it something that once you started studying that you really wanted to to do?
0: I wish I wish I had a more passionate and interesting story behind why I became a nurse, but I think the main thing that led me to pursue. Any sort of degree was just the opportunity to move from my country town to go to university and study something. I was drawn to work in a hospital. Didn't know exactly what I wanted to do. I chose nursing, as the good um, career counselors advised me to do, and I went and did it. And I didn't love it. Every year of uni, wanted to find something different. I think also I didn't have anyone in my immediate family that were nurses, so. I didn't know I it's hard to discuss sort of what the actual role entails um, and I think any because any university degree doesn't really represent the career that well so it's hard to know that I would enjoy it and it wasn't until maybe towards the end of my first year as a gradu- graduate nurse that I came to love it and I was fortunate enough to for two years been my time rotating around the hospital that I work at and see different areas and the cancer ward uh, which was initially also um, a palliative care ward as well I didn't expect it to uh, resonate with me so much professionally and then I got the opportunity to work there absolutely loved it had to rotate move on but then found myself applying for a job back on that ward and I've been there since and specialized in the area and I just I love it so I ended up there by pure chance really.
1: Yeah awesome what what was it that made you love the job once you were actually on the job and and what was the big difference between that and what was happening at uni that made you not you know unsure if you wanted to continue?
0: I think university it's hard and it's a hard adjustment and you don't really know what you're going to be doing sometimes and then I think it was mostly the, um, I get really nervous at on placements and I'm not one to enjoy the learning period of anything that much. I just wanted to know what I was doing and skip to that. But so that that was probably why I didn't initially think it was for me and then as time grew on and my confidence grew, I just, I love
1: it. Yeah, so many people would say that it's a job that, you need to be a special someone to do or, you know, have something about you to do because you're, you're not only caring deeply for people and remaining professional, you're also seeing a lot of things not only with patients themselves but with families of the patients and a lot of people, you know, find that really uncomfortable. Did you almost find that part, the easy part compared to the, the learning, the anatomy—you know—all the things that you have to do in the book, the bookwork side of things.
0: Yeah, that was definitely the part that comes easier, and it's probably a lot of interpersonal attributes come into that that you just—I don't think—can teach to become natural at that. Uh, so, yeah, that's that's, and that is the main part that I still love, and was the main part that drew, drew me to this sort of career path. And I think everyone says you have to be a certain type of person to be a nurse. And not to gratify us nurses or anything, but I think it is true and then it, it sort of it shows in the friendships that you form with your, your colleagues just seem to be so strong and I think it's based on that everyone's got very similar values and sick sense of humour as well, you'll find.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I think you'd have to. I, I find um, <laughs> nurses and teachers get often uh, lumped together yeah. maybe not necessarily as friends together, but that the the same sort of things tend to happen, you know, behind closed doors in in the nurse's office or, and in the teacher's staff room, you know, all of that sort of thing that people often say, what what teachers and nurses get up to and, <laughs> or at least, you know, all the stuff that gets, goes on. But is it because of that idea that you have to have the same values, that you, you really do have to be unified for it to be successful, that there isn't, that maybe that competition that, exists in in a lot of other areas that are competitive corporate worlds or different businesses things like that that you know require a cutting edge that there's that you can be open and honest with your colleagues as a teacher or as a nurse in this case
0: yeah definitely I think you've said that perfectly it's not a corporate world that we work in so there's none of that and there's a lot of reliance on teamwork and support support of each other So I think that that's what makes the job fun as well, working together, a lot on an equal playing field. And also with shift work, you also find you're not working with the same person every day or anything like that. So you don't really get the time to get sick of a colleague.
1: So what does a day look like or a week in your life look like as a nurse? Describe the the, the shift work side of things, who you're working with, what goes on behind the scenes because most people involved in hospitals are there not really focusing on what's going on around them because they're visiting a loved one yeah you know sometimes with great news like a, a baby or a successful elective surgery or something but oftentimes in pretty hard circumstances so what you know what's your story behind the scenes there
0: funny you ask that like that because when you try and explain a job i feel like no one unless you know a job like this this is relatable to any job no one really knows until you do it and then I know I was with my boyfriend he's a town planner I have no idea what that entailed so we just went and he has no idea what my day-to-day job entails. so we just went through hour by hour what I would do in a day but I found myself was like oh it's really dependent on what is happening and what needs to happen but basically caring and orchestrating holistic care for people and sometimes that extends to their whole family as well, looking at every part of their health that they need attention for, and then ensuring that that's being delivered. Yeah, I could bore you with.
1: <laughs> step- well, step- my follow-up is the ward that you're in specifically. Yeah. So it's okay. yeah. it's a cancer ward, but you talked about the two names of the ward. What are they, and can you describe those two words there for us?
0: All right. So. I work on an oncology and haematology ward. So we look after patients with either, if you think, solid tumours or cancers of the blood or lymphatic system. We look after those people from the start of their diagnosis, uh, throughout their treatment, throughout complications and throughout recovery or throughout their end of life as well, as we do a fair bit with palliative care as well. And anything in between, really, that's, that's cancer-related, basically.
1: You mentioned earlier that the palliative care ward was a part, the same ward, basically, and now it's been removed? Or, or how does that work?
0: Uh, physically, in the building, it was in a different area, but we ran the ward. But with changes in the hospital, that's now being run by a different, by a different ward. Basically, with the trajectory of a lot of cancer, we do a lot with palliative care, which doesn't always mean end of life. So we still have a lot to do with with uh, symptom management.
1: What else could it be? Could it just be that it's at a quite a serious stage of treatment where you need to, as you said, treat symptoms and, and try to—is it more like the dulling pain side of thing? What What are we talking about when we
0: yeah? When we that's talk part about of it. That's part of it.
1: Palliative care in general, and yeah.
0: Yep, that's definitely part of it, the pain management, and a big part of it. People are going to laugh that I get to get on my uh, my rant about this. Um, essentially, palliative, if you take it back to the definition, just means relieving symptoms. There's a lot of symptoms that come with cancer and the treatment associated. So that can be, yeah, from pain, from nausea, from um, reduced appetite mobility, mentally as well. By nature, palliative care just refers to any way that we can relieve suffering. And it also incorporates end-of-life care as well. But it's got the strong connotation with end-of-life care.
1: Yeah, I guess that's that's what you hear often externally. So you said that you mentioned that you were specialised in your or have specialised in your field. What is that specialisation?
0: I, uh, with a couple of my colleagues, last year we did a graduate certificate in cancer and palliative care through Melbourne University, uh, which was ran out of Peter Mac, uh, Peter MacCallum Cancer Centre, and that was a year long course. It was it was really good, and it's it was um it was great to actually going back to study a field that you're actually passionate about and. Um, I suppose as mature age, we would be classified as, I don't know. You delve more into the nursing role in, in the specialised area.
1: Was that go, like almost like going back into uni for you? Was it study or was it more hands-on?
0: It was It was a bit of both. So the hospital support, you practically through it, through um, in terms of assessments on the ward, but very much study, like essays, assignments exams everything
1: yeah you said that it was great to be able to study you know after or, or something that when you were passionate about it yeah and as a mature age student I often hear that <laughs> because you sort of target and even though you know you're still young it's you it's that point where you've had a career or been involved with that work and you're starting to learn what what it is you love about it what it is you want to learn more about and and why it actually matters is that really why you found it so much more enjoyable this time compared to the sort of a bit more blasé type thing of the initial course that I think everyone experiences as as an undergrad?
0: Definitely, definitely, because it's something you not more choose to do because you still choose an undergrad, but something that you can relate more to. And obviously you choose to undertake these courses because you already know that it is a passion. And you take it as a big opportunity and take advantage of the, of the course more and you're more involved because you can maybe see the immediate effects that it can help with your, your work because you're able to take things back immediately, practice things, educate others, empower others and inspire others. So I think that's why.
1: Yeah, yeah great. Often in teaching, there's constantly noise from the outside world. And I use teaching because that's my field. Um, but there's constantly noise from the outside world saying that you know we need better teachers. We need them to be you know get higher grades or get better marks or better tested or you know all of this more registration and there's just an overwhelming amount of expectation and paperwork and, and things that come along with that because it is a government job mostly or it, and it's everyone's involved. It's affecting everyone because someone has been to school or has a child or a relative that's at school or whatever it might be, so people become experts. Do you feel the same thing with nursing? Do you feel that pressure externally sometimes? And is there something that's going on at the moment that you're shaking your head about the noise from the outside world?
0: I think so to an extent, but I think maybe, I don't know if this really relates to your question, but it just makes me think of this expectation that you know everyone's health questions or you know more about what's happening um, in terms of, like, say, for COVID-19, that you, you know more or that you can answer every question, but it's, it's just not the case. Um, we're not experts in everything.
1: Well, I've got a hard-hitting question for you then, Nurse Rachel, which is, is coronavirus 5G related? <laughs> <laughs>
0: It definitely is.
1: Great. I'm glad we got cleared that up. Are, are you blown away by some of the commentary around COVID and people's like reactions and ideas about what it is? Does that blow you away as someone that is in the industry and, and sees? Well, you know, Do you see it on the ground or do you have at least a knowledge of what's going on to say that this is serious, this is real, and this is something we should listen to the experts about?
0: Definitely, definitely. I think it is something we need to band together and do what we're advised to do. I think the shock, most shocking thing I've heard, which I guess if you get yourself into a YouTube hole or, but the, the big COVID deniers, I think really, even if it is fake, it's still having the impact that it's having. So you can't deny the impact that it's having, which is the main issue. So that's probably what I find most most shocking because people don't. If you're not, if you don't, I uh, think we're seeing the impact of it and the effects in a hospital.
1: Uh, yeah. What are the effects that you're saying? What What is it that you have to deal with? Yeah. As a nurse in the hospitals, and and has it changed since the first outbreak to what you're doing now?
0: So it's changed everything. The whole processes from walking in the door to leaving everything in between we have had training on on how to uh, perform different tasks and procedures down to how to hand over paper documents so it definitely changes in that respect and it's also what I've uh, have seen firsthand is people's cancer treatment be either delayed or there's more scrutiny on whether to start treatment, whether it's safe or not, just given the unknown. And um, I think the first lockdown period, uh, we went, the, I think everyone was the same, went into a big, oh, how are we going to cope with this? Um, and thank God for where we are that nothing spiralled into The chaos that we've seen around the world and we've then been fortunate enough to prepare for such chaos but then it 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 actually went pretty quiet for a long time and especially because where I work we were delaying treatments and so we were a bit quiet and you could even see a, a lot of extra staff around and everything like that but now this time around I think it's a lot more real for everyone uh there's been you know the we've gone back into lockdown in Melbourne we've seen we now have positive cases many hospitals now have live cases so it's a lot more real and all we can all we can do is draw from the preparation time that we've been lucky to have. So it affects not only the people that are directly affected, with the virus, but it's just a flow-on effect to everyone, to every delayed treatment, everything like that, even just externally, but you don't even need to work in a hospital, That had family members know that they're, like their breast screening has been delayed because that's had to close and their elective surgeries have had to be pulled back. So it's going to be a bit of a lot of backlog. So I think everyone's going to see the ripple effect whether they work in a hospital or not.
1: I think that's the, the big thing that we need to, to think of, and i often hear people saying well the cases aren't even that high but the issue is that we have to prepare for the worst and we know that in some countries with hospital systems even equal to us have been completely overwhelmed so it's not like australia even though we do have a great health system we we still need to be careful and the thing is that even if we could take everyone in our icu beds or even just you know our wards in general we cannot have patients without COVID in those areas. So then we actually end up, you know, filling a lot more of a hospital than normal with COVID patients. And and that's where we need to start being careful about not reaching huge numbers, we, that even though our numbers are relatively low worldwide, when it rises, we need to make that adjustment in our lives, because our health system is everything to us. I, I believe that, you know, that what is above health in, in our life, because if you're healthy not a, not just alive but healthy you're going to have a much better quality of life so when you're sick you want to be able to have people that are willing to be there for you and to look after you without you know fearing for their own lives and and being run off their feet and then also that that the people that need treatment not just you but anyone that needs treatment is is ready that's ready for us to to be there for us and i'm i'm so passionate right now in my head about advocating for the health system and advocating for nurses and advocating for the science and for medicine because when someone's got a broken arm and they're screaming in pain, the drugs that we have to stop that pain is created by medicine, created by science. Likewise with the nurse that'll inject those or or put the drip in and and everything along the way and that's just a simple broken arm but you know even for something as serious as cancer or something as serious as a heart attack you know instantly on the phone a paramedic's there and you know we're talking minutes when we're talking about getting there on time and saving people's lives and that that's pretty great in in a society to have that but then when it comes to covid people have just flipped it and I get it it's scary it's frustrating it's annoying we get so much news from different areas and misinformation whether on purpose or just accidental. But I'm just right now, and and then one of the main reasons of talking to you at this point in time, because I've always wanted to, Rach, but at this (laughs) point in time is to hear about someone, not necessarily about, you know, what COVID is all about, but what your life is as a nurse and what your, your job is, what your role is, and that, you know, we need to respect you as a person in what you do. And, and everyone like you because, and in the system that you work in. And I, and I really want to delve into that because it'll help clarify and clear things up for people that might think, well, this is just a, a, a flu, or this is not that big of a deal, or it's, it's a way to make us pay on cards instead of cash. You know, there's all sorts of ideas that people have. Yeah. But at the yep. end of the day, it's an it's a invasion of a virus that we just have to do whatever we can to stop.
0: Exactly. I want to touch on a lot of things that you just said there, but firstly, I think, like you said, in healthcare, we're so used to and we're in it to help people that are in need, and I think that's been the major—that's well, probably for me the scariest point of everything—is getting to a point where we can't deliver the care that other that people need, not coronavirus-related, um, because of a situation like we've seen. Across the world, I think that's really scary, especially since we are so lucky in Australia with our healthcare system. Uh, that it's almost sometimes goes the other way, and people think it's such a big right to have such a good healthcare system. But um, we forget that we're we're lucky that we we live in a country that that allows us to access and provides us access to such good healthcare. Um, and because we're used to that, I think. That's the hardest, scary thing to dwell on, that it will just become care for patients with immediate needs, which will be COVID patients. And then you've seen, everyone's read many stories where yeah, doctors are having to choose who lives or dies or who gets the ICU beds and everything. And I think the efforts that the Australian government are trying to do and the Victorian government is just to reduce the chance of that happening. So hopefully we're doing enough that, that we don't see that um we'll come out of this very lucky and with a lot of support from the rest of the community that's come out for frontline workers which has been great to see and every essential worker and i suppose secondly what that brought to mind was that at the end of the day even healthcare workers don't really know what's going on or no one knows really the full extent of coronavirus or how it's going to play out or pan out so everyone's in this bit of unknown territory doing what they can do best, but you can feel this increasing sense of anxiety around your colleagues and things at the moment. So yeah, it's affecting the whole system in a lot of different ways.
1: So you're an advocate normally for your patients, for people that you know need treatment. And right now, sometimes people are being turned away with maybe more minor symptoms or, or more minor cases of things that then can possibly build up and become worse. But the decision has to be made that it's best not to fill up those beds. We may need them or, or whatever. Is that, is that what's going on at the moment? That normally you'd advocate for them to get treatment instantly and you're with them. And now it's sort of that second guessing whether... And maybe not. It's not your personal decision, but the, the the way up now, the triaging of people has to change.
0: Yeah, well, to an extent, and I can only I only know from my area. But it, thank God it hasn't really got to that stage. But initially, when no one was really with the first wave and the first lockdown, no one really knew. No one still knows what we're dealing with, so it's hard to it's hard to decide what is going to be safe because essentially with a lot of cancer treatments, you're stripping everyone, you're stripping someone of their immune system, making them very susceptible to infection. So you've got to just be cautious of that before starting treatment. I don't think we've seen, and I don't want to like scare anyone because it's not probably what's actually happened, but I haven't had to see many treatments get delayed or not happen or anything, but it was, it was a question that we were prepared to face, I suppose. Like there was conversations had about that. So I suppose that's the reality. The reality of even talking about that can hit home, and um, that it's not just—it's bigger. The effects of this virus will has rippling effects everywhere.
1: Yeah, it's it's a tough one. But um, on this point, I mean, we're going to—I want to move on. But um, it it must be extremely difficult for you to enter a workplace that is at the front line of this, that everyone's anxious and everyone's scared, but um, many of us are pretty far away from it and may not even know someone that has um, been affected by it, let alone, you know, next to someone, you know, just with a bit of cloth and plastic protecting your face or something. So it's, yeah, it it must must be scary on that front, but also from what I've seen is that you just sort of, it's another day at work and you, and you take it on. Is that how you feel with it? Yeah,
0: it is. It's, it's At home, I actually feel more, I find myself being more worried about the situation. And I think maybe that feeds in from having more time to listen to or read the news, which now I try to actively limit. And then when you're at work, things have been pretty much business as usual, really, just with added now precautions, which just feel like the norm more so now as we've been sort of preparing for months now Um, but I think a lot of the there's been a lot of change there's been a lot of unknown there's in my role I'm part of a, a leadership team so I suppose we're often asked a lot of the practical questions and there's often actually not answers, so that can be really difficult because you you try your best always to have answers or find answers for everyone, but sometimes there just aren't. So that's really difficult, and it sort of just highlights that we're all going into unknown territory together. Um, we're very fortunate that the culture where I work is quite strong, and that we've all banded together, and we look after each other, support each other. Another tough part is that we're all usually pretty social together, which that has had to stop. But at least we get to go to work and see people in the flesh and be around people and things are pretty much at the moment normal, which I think is the general feeling around, but things could be changing right now at work for them. So it's hard to say at the moment, but we are... I know I've just counted myself as a very fortunate one. That's, I still get to work, still get to go to work. I uh, get to escape from home and pretty much carry on as normal at work.
1: I remember a few years ago we had a chat and I just got this amazing amount of passion out of you about your job and about the love for your job and and uh, you know it's a couple of years at least now since that conversation and I hope it's still there but um what was it that that made you or what is it that you love about your job the most what is it that gets you out of bed and or you know at the end of the day reflecting on a day I know every day is different but on on those good days what is it that's the, the the thing that you love the most about what you do?
0: I'm glad. I'm glad you remember that conversation, Matt. Um, do you? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> but you know, it must be true, then. That's what they say. <laughs> no, i I and I know I'm very passionate about it. I I do love it. It's it's not only been like we touched on. It's a job where. We're not working in the corporate world, so you're working for many very different reasons. You're working for people to provide comfort and care that someone needs in their most vulnerable state and that is such a gift and such a precious experience that I get to do every day is be and look after patients and their families in their most vulnerable time and also work, carry that out amongst a group of legends that are all there for the same reason. And in my experience, I've always worked in a team that just bonds really well, great people. It's, that's what gets me out of bed most days is just, is mainly the people that I work with because everyone is amazing and it probably comes down to everyone's there for the same reason, to provide care Selfless care, really. Not that I'm not a selfish person or anything, but when you're there, I suppose you are providing selfless care, improving someone's life in some small way. You don't always appreciate it, as people do see some um, violence against healthcare workers in in the media, but most part is we're inundated with chocolates all the time. Lucky we're on our feet all day, but... You could do the simplest thing and someone won't stop thanking you and it's just, it's so rewarding. That's, yeah, that's what I'm trying to find, rewarding.
1: <laughs> yeah. No, that, that's great. That's beautiful because, oh, look, personally, I cannot think of, I would just, I get terrified with the idea of having to, to do that for someone to, I mean, not only the physical stuff but just to be there when people are vulnerable, when people are maybe needing a, a shoulder to cry on or, or just they're angry or they're just upset by what's going on in general. Do you, what's an emotion that you see the most, would you say?
0: Well, there's there's so many. Um, I'm not going to say it's typical, but one that I will talk about is, I suppose, a lot of anxiety and then sometimes that can come out in um, someone might view it as someone's being disrespectful or angry or rude and I think it can take a lot, but it, it's it's necessary to sometimes step back and just realise why a person might be acting a certain way. And generally that's because they're vulnerable, they're scared, they're, they don't know what, this might be the first time in hospital, they don't know what's going on, they might have just been given a diagnosis of even just the word cancer, that would set anybody off. So I think the... Anxiety and vulnerability is a major thing that I see and um, deal with. And I think over time, you just become better with approaching that. I know that that was a major reason why I was so scared to enter this field, but funnily enough it's it's now why, not to say that in a um, not a morbid way or in a bad way, but being able to be able to have those conversations and not shying away from people and being able to recognise those type of emotions and maybe still showing your, your support and being able to help someone through that is important.
1: Did it take a long time to learn it, that, that how to react? Did you think it was personal maybe at first or that it was just a rude person and then you had to learn that it's from an underlying emotion or is that something that you sort of recognise straight away?
0: I think it's something everyone's got the ability to know straight away but it's about you know initially you can take anything very personally and then it just takes time to take a step back and reflect on the why. So being able to identify that becomes easier over time and then your initial reaction wouldn't be to take things personally or you're more inclined to think why straight away but it Definitely, I think then responding is something that you you learn and you develop skills. I know I take a, a lot of what I've learned from colleagues and how they approach things. That's where I've learned a lot on the job, and I suppose comes down to who a person is. Sometimes some things can't be taught, but they can definitely be influenced or anything. Yeah.
1: Do you have someone you work with that is that figure of? Um expertise like that maybe matriarch figure that um or patriarch figure whatever it might be that's up in the ward that everyone looks for that person when there's something difficult going on or something that they've said to you that resonates in your head okay this is what I've got to do
0: definitely there's actually most people that I work with are that person for me a little secret hope that I have is that I will be that person for somebody else one day <laughs> but um yeah there's there's many people that I work with that they all just genuinely care and then how they communicate it just shows I think the people that i look look to with that have these skills there's a correlation with them and then being just a genuine caring person yeah that they've got a lot to a lot to give and a lot to teach
1: and how much like scrubs is working in a hospital
0: (laughs) you know what some days we laugh and we think we are in (laughs) an episode and it's great
1: yeah
0: (laughs) and I'm definitely dorky JD all
1: right yeah yeah
0: (laughs) um (laughs) I think it can very much be like an episode of scrubs and, and that's
1: that oh, you yeah, go great on. Day. Yeah, it's a great day. If it's a, if it's a so great space. day. Yeah. And it means yeah. that
0: we can laugh and find the funny side of things. But otherwise, it can be very it can be very stressful, I think, like any job.
1: Any mm. job can
0: be stressful. It's not like Grey's Anatomy.
1: So you know, you mentioned laughter and happiness and colleagues and, and relationships, and, and I think that is so necessary anywhere and often we forget that especially when we're maybe working from home or or at home a lot and our communication is through the internet or through comment pages on the internet or on tv on on Q&A or something and people watch it and, and yell down the screen at people and we we create much more of a divide and then you see that when people are at the front in a hospital Maybe on a battlefield or in a in a natural disaster and stuff, and you hear people talk, and they're just like the people got me through it, jokes got me through it, laughter got me through it. it wasn't the differences it was the the commonalities. Do you find that you're less susceptible in your life to be be divisive because of what you see and the vulnerabilities you see from a whole range of people in a hospital
0: yeah I think that is probably a major part of it, is that you have this shared experience and you have this shared experience of, like you said, um, seeing vulnerability, seeing others at their worst, whether that's they're dying or they've just been grossly incontinent everywhere. (laughs) And I think also maybe having a shared perspective on life as well. And again, not working in maybe a corporate competitive world, I think that that we're very, very reliant on on teamwork, on being on our feet, working together. Yeah, I, I
1: don't know. If Let me it's probe like this you anywhere. further with um, you know, the, the the humor side of things in in, in dark situations. <laughs>
0: Well I don't know what comes first the dark sense of humor or the nursing career <laughs> but I don't, mm. don't know what influences the other <laughs> but I think maybe it's because if you don't it's like if you don't laugh you'll cry situation sometimes or you support each other by by shedding a bit of light on on anything or you just you want to bring some joy to the day to take away from the stresses of being called upon and needed and run off your feet for eight hours and uh, yeah maybe it all comes down to that I don't know.
1: Is laughter valued with patients and even maybe the families of patients as, as much or is it do they want you to be serious I know it would probably be a, an individual by individual case but do you find sometimes that you've got to you go into a, a room or a way, and and you're having a giggle and and laugh and and saying a joke, and then you've got to put game face back on, get out there, and hide that sort of fun part. Or do you think you get to experience and show that level of humor and, and the smile even when people are um, in some sort of pretty bad position? Sometimes,
0: I think it's very important to share that personality with our patients and. I think we all try and we say crack someone make them laugh or smile and I think especially when family are there and then they can see that that might I suppose bring a bit of comfort that they've being looked after by someone that can bring some happiness and joy and lightheartedness as long as you know they're getting good quality care as well but I think anyone um, values a bit of a bit of fun And I think that's important. Laughter is the best medicine, besides antibiotics. (laughs) 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 But Uh, I think what's been your experience in in hospitals? Like what Uh, have you, what do you, what's your experience? I suppose everyone's different. A lot of people might not have even experienced.
1: Yeah. um, Oh, look, I haven't been in hospital, in hospitals much. When people have been sick or unwell around me, which hasn't been many, but I was probably a bit younger with many and also I was terrified of hospitals uh growing up I hated them um grandparents being there uh or even like uh, even aged care homes which are different but there was that almost sterile the smell of soap or or cleaning product you know there's
0: the smell there's the smell
1: (laughs) and it it was I didn't like it and then um over time I ended up you always get good views in hospitals. So I used to be like, I'll go and just look out the window. (laughs) (laughs) And then eventually I I warmed up to the idea and I became more brave and and courageous as time went on to visit people even on my own or, you know, to see people with the tubes and and things, but it's never that bad. I think we build up a lot more in our heads, you know, when we, we visit someone that may have Bits and pieces dangling everywhere, and <laughs> of machinery and of themselves. Um, yep. Yep. <laughs> and um, in, in terms of me, I I've been in it a couple of times, and, and it's been, you know, great care and the best care that I've got from doctors, nurses, physios, whoever I've I've been involved in in hospitals has been those that make you laugh and those that have a yeah. joke with you and sort of do the job without you even knowing, like, it's just a, a bit of banter and the jobs being done yep. around you. Um, and I think that's probably, uh, is that something you're trained to do or is that something that just goes on personality?
0: I think that's personality. I think, <laughs> <laughs> I think that's more a lot to do with personality and I love that you said that because that's, I suppose, what I was trying to get at, that anything that's going to make a situation less tense like say yep you're coming into hospital to visit a loved one you're scared you're just wanting to look out the window but if you can come in and see that you know someone can be yep getting the job done but you don't really notice that because you're you're more noticing about the conversation that they're having with you or your loved one and might even make you smile or something and then you feel less tense and then your whole experience with hospitals might change um of you I think yeah you sort of answered your own uh, my own question for you
1: (laughs) um we can flip it around if you like and uh but i I don't have much to add about hospitals and and this sort of thing (laughs) other than the fear of blood and and (laughs) is there something now that about your job that you don't like or that you icked out about or is it more that the the paperwork admin side that you you don't like
0: no in the in the most part i enjoy everything that i do I think the hardest part is like any job, it's maybe the increase in amount of paperwork that just comes down to. I think someone put it perfectly once where we operate out of fear of litigation. Mm. And maybe that means that we have to do much more paperwork and documentation, which could sometimes derive us from physically providing care and doing a lot of hands-on so that juggle can be quite hard another thing that I'm in the last year I've moved more into a yeah leadership management position which think you you do one step back from the patients at times and more obviously looking after your, your staff and that can be a challenge at times one because you just miss while you're while you're there in the first place and that's for the patients. And then secondly, you've got to make sure that everyone's you provide care for those that are providing the care. And especially in these times of um we've got I've got a lot of colleagues that have suffered a lot of anxiety, which is so understandable through these unknown times. And even just without this current situation, um it's a it's a job with high levels of burnout high levels of stress and anxiety and being exposed to that that sort of responsibility has been full on, but it's been it's also been great because you've also been able to be have also been able to just be a good support for others. Sorry, I don't know if that that's probably No, that's it.
1: perfect. And that yeah. comment that comment on you know, the fear of litigation operating on, uh, based on that fear in any way is never, never a good way to be. But a lot of industries are that way these days. And I, I find that it can take away, can lead to there being a barrier between being 100% yourself and your best self and, and, you know, almost winging it in, in a good way. You know, being there, I'll walk in and be as vocal and, and whatever I need to be and, and do what I need to do and then worry about the the paperwork stuff later. But oftentimes it's like, no, we've got to tick these boxes. We've got to make sure we've been at these times. We've got to, I don't know, I know that there's whiteboards around with, you know, checked on at this time. And I get it. I do get it that yeah. every job that has those things, I know that, you know, people in the building industry hate it because they're just like, come on, I've got to do hours of this and I'm a, I'm a bloody builder and i've got to be in yeah. every night you know for hours doing this paperwork to get permits through but then we don't want houses falling down or people you know getting sick exactly hurt you understand at work. why yeah you do und- you yeah. do get it but yeah. it's almost it should be based on let's get it right rather than that fear but we are in different industries now worrying about what is in my case the parents going to think or w- yeah. in your case it's not even the patients it's probably the people that are caring for the patients when they get back home, that you're most worried yeah. about sometimes, or or a boss or whoever it might be that you just they're under the pump with everything being right, it's on them, so they're going back at you. So how do you balance that as someone that is managing people? You talk you mentioned culture earlier. How do you build a culture or help foster a good culture amongst staff?
0: I think always. And I always try to practice this, but work with the team, be very um, hands-on and physically present and the classic stuff of just being approachable and honest. And I always try, if I don't know an answer, we try and find an answer. And I think that that's just important that I think any good leader shows that everyone can learn and grow together. And I suppose it's just empowering everyone with, the skills and the confidence and the abilities to, to in our industry, give, the, give a great level of care for the people that we see.
1: Yeah, I think I've, I saw the difference between a, a boss and a leader. You know, a boss is someone that forces the most out of them in more of an aggressive way, not necessarily aggression, but it can be viewed in that manner versus someone that empowers someone and lets someone grow and flourish and be with you, alongside you, rather than you just sort of on top of it, and, and you answered that perfectly. You've got the job, Roach. Um, I was, was
0: going to say, I felt like that was a job interview.
1: <laughs> I, I know. Once I asked the question, I thought, "Is this a job interview now?" But um, <laughs> no. Okay, I, I I'll be CEO. It's fine. Yeah, great. <laughs> Moments of Clarity Productions, you're in. <laughs> We've gone through so much already about about what you do personally, but now I want to go go into the patients that you are uh, about, uh, I won't say go into the patients because that that's a litigation <laughs> way to tap is isn't it? <laughs> um, I don't
0: know what you think a hospital is, Matt, but we don't go into the
1: patients. Uh, I'm thinking of something else, another big building. Um, uh, hotel, quarantine hotel uh, is what I'm
0: thinking. Uh-uh. Um, <laughs> We'll talk about
1: my personal life later. Security on the side. That's how it works, isn't it? Um, (laughs) We've gone and and looked into uh, your career and and what you do as a nurse and as a a health practitioner um, in general. But then what about the patients themselves? You know, you're being confronted and, and they're being confronted by various grades of diagnoses that in many cases life threatening first of all do you have a sort of idea even on your level of the statistics of people that come in with something that's really major versus you know stuff that you're pretty sure they'll recover from
0: in a general sense i think that hospitals through their emergency departments see a lot of non emergency situations and i think what's happening in the world at the moment has shown that a lot of people have stayed away for non-emergency situations which meant that some departments have been a bit quiet as well um, maybe more through the first wave but no I don't really don't really know statistically what
1: so in in when you go around on the ward and, and you've go into yep. different beds you know different rooms do you, would you say that there's a even a number of people just off the top of your head that I mean, obviously, if you're diagnosed with cancer and you're in a cancer ward, we're not talking about people that have a sore head and think they've got something, and then they appear, and then it's just like you've got a headache or a migraine. Yeah, it's we're we're talking about people that have now been diagnosed with cancer or a blood disorder, whatever it might be of some sort. So, when you get into a new room and you you see the the, I, I guess the pay or what the paperwork of a new patient, is there. More often than not, a hope that they'll be okay by the end of it, that the treatment will work and that you'll be working with someone that's going to live through it? Or is the reality that there's going to be many people that won't make it and you can sort of see that from the start?
0: Really hard question to answer because we're seeing people at all different stages of their disease trajectory. And a major, a major question is exactly what you've basically just asked in especially with hematological malignancies is that it's very borderline if our treatment will see someone through to remission or if it will just tip them over the edge. There's a lot of testing, pre-testing that will show through their how we say like cytogenetics and other, disease specific tests that we do to gather all the information before starting to treat someone can be prognostic factors of whether someone um, has a poor prognosis or whether they've got um, good chance that the treatment we can offer here will give them a good chance of finding remission but that can be ever-changing throughout and complications can occur so a lot of the time, it's an answer that the doctors might not be even able to answer, as well. Which is, which is hard when you're treating someone and you don't, you don't know how long that piece of string is. You don't have the answers for them. You don't know whether to be caring for them with a sense of hope or looking down a symptom management approach and um, having different conversations and things like that. And sometimes as we're we're in acute ward, we're either seeing people that are that are quite unwell that we do see a lot of people recover, but it's always um a lot of the time it's you don't know. It's the unknown. That's the the theme. It's unknown <laughs> sometimes.
1: Yeah. Being so close to this and what was your thought on the C word of cancer prior to being so intimately involved with people that are going through cancer treatment versus how you feel now? Are you less, more equally scared of it? Like what, what does it do? Because for most people it is a scary word and people are terrified of it. And the likelihood is, you know, I don't know what it is, but one third of people may have some sort of cancer, whether malignant or benign, but you know, a cancer, in their lifetime so most people are going to be affected by it or know someone that has so I mean that's a worrying statistic of itself and might lead to people ignoring pain or ignoring loss of vision or things that happen to a point and then it gets too serious and too acute are you now at a point where it's like you know what I'm uh, my awareness has actually made me less scared of it or or are you still terrified if you ever were,
0: no, I think no. That's a great question because it's mixed mixed feelings. I know initially when I started out, I was a hypochondriac. I had every every condition under the sun. I was sick, <laughs> but I think over time you get more immune and less less worried. Uh, I think we have to remind ourselves that we're seeing a very concentrated demographic basically a lot of patients and that we some days it feels like oh everyone's got leukemia or all it's always this type of people that present with this but really we're just seeing a concentration of it and I think all we can do is advocate for preventative measures really so if I say you're smoking Matt I'll, <laughs> I'll i'll tell you off
1: <laughs> and thank so. you for that
0: <laughs> <laughs> but yeah and i think it's hard i think anyone can appreciate that anything that they feel could be anything from something non-worrying to something sinister so it, it's hard it's hard to tell
1: and for you personally I, I you were a hypochondriac now you're not or not as bad but i guess there's two parts to this question the part of cancer being this big scary thing in general but then also that the treatment that you get and the people that you meet that it's not it's not a life sentence a diagnosis isn't you know it doesn't mean death and secondly that even along the journey that it's not just pain and horror and terror the whole time that there are even with people that are you know going through end of life stages of their care that there's beautiful moments too, and, and moments of, um, I won't say clarity, because, uh, but moments <laughs> of beauty and moments of introspection that comes out as like almost like, a new a new person comes out. Do you find that happens sometimes?
0: Definitely, I think my whole view on what cancer means and what cancer is has definitely changed. I've gone from someone. Another major reason why I was scared to enter the field was because death. The thought of death was the most scariest thing to me and I remember when I was younger I was constantly asking people what they thought of death and what dying was and where we went afterwards and I was like I would stay up at night because I was so worried about it so looking back now I'm like wow I actually sort of faced with that more often than just the normal everyday working person but um so it's like a big big comparison that sometimes I reflect on that I used to be so scared of uh, facing anything that was related to dying to ultimately working in a field that has a strong connotation to that. But I suppose, like you said, it, it doesn't actually always mean that or anything like that. And you often find people going through treatment and from diagnosis to remission that a lot of people the way that they can still act so kind and be such a great person is so amazing to see because you can just imagine how scared someone may be or like how you yourself might be in a situation like that but these people are going through the scariest part of their life and being so kind and understanding and patient especially when they're probably spending a lot of A lot of their days um, away from home and their loved ones. Um, And I think that's what gets me the most is that someone might face treatment and they'll be with us for the most part of their last part of their life sometimes. And sometimes you feel not personally guilty, but you often wonder about our Western medicine and values um in prolonging life and the quality versus the length of life um and sometimes i feel like we um not we as in where i work but just society that we often overlook quality over quantity in terms of in terms of life and that's probably been the hardest that's the hardest part of the job is knowing that someone has been away from their loved one and family for so long when they could have enjoyed their last days not struggling like they do and I think that's just because people don't know an alternative people rely a lot on what they think is best and I think the general thought is what's best is to commit to treatment until till the end and like if it's a good result or um, not so great result so that's probably an ongoing battle for for everyone.
1: Oh, that's such an interesting point about the quality versus quantity and and that there are many parts of the world still today, but probably throughout history where the end of life would have been surrounded by people you love in your bed where you spent, you know, 40 years of your life in or, you know, your home with people that you love always visiting and then yeah, there's those horrible moments towards the end or during where there's more pain than probably there needs to be because there's no, you know, morphine or something that can, can stop the pain. And also that maybe you do get a little bit less time, but as you say, it's a juggling act and being part Mm. of the medical field. A lot of people often say that, that often treatment is worse than the cancer itself. Is it worth yeah. the risk? And and people do make yeah. those calls. As a nurse, I know you're not probably someone that is able to make the decision as such about what to do, but you're advocating for the patient. Do you ever have those challenging conversations with doctors or hear those conversations with specialists that occur?
0: Definitely, all the time. And I think that's a very special part of our role is we... We are so hands-on, have so much contact with patients and their loved ones. Uh, We know what's pushing them, what's getting to them, and we have the opportunity to be their advocate using what we learn from them and then also our, our knowledge of situations and our experience, and that's something that... with experience you just get better and better at is knowing when to um, raise questions because it's and it's it's important and it's valued it's it's if you're advocating for a patient no doctor's ever going to knock you down and if they are then they're they're not doing what's best for for their patient um it just ensures that it's you're providing the right care for the right person and sometimes that's hard because you don't you don't know if a treatment's going to work or not and I've read a lot of articles about how it's especially hard with blood cancers and the treatment they require to know when to stop really so we do see that a lot and then it's then it becomes harder when you see people so ill and then they bounce back and then you discharge them home and they're great and then you you get a card from them that they're doing great and you're like, wow. So then you're muddled with that hope and everything and that's a possibility as well. So it's so hard. You you just don't know sometimes and you can only do your best at advocating at the time and getting as much information and everything as possible.
1: The uncertainty is back again and (laughs) I think with any... A realistic fields of knowledge or of action. Everything's unrealistic. I mean, uncertain. You know, stepping out on the footy field and you don't know if you're going to win or lose, even if you're on top of the ladder and they're on the bottom. Likewise with people's health, you know, you said about smoking before, but some smokers live to 90 while some marathon runners live to 40. There's a whole range of things. But statistically we know what, you know, that smoking is bad and that exercising is good. But um, there are moments where random things happen. And I think uncertainty and randomness confuse people because often people want an answer. And when it comes to the people's health and what happens to family members, they want that answer. And they're often cases, and, and it's, it's understandable that, you know, you got it wrong. So that field must be wrong, but it is an uncertain field. No doctor's going to talk about, that they know everything. And as you said, if they do, they probably don't know what they're talking about. And and (laughs) you said the the same thing with your answers. I've, you know, targeted a couple of things about what's going to happen to people, but the common thread is we don't know. Do you have a comment about that, that uncertainty? Do you think that adds to the anxiety that you see with staff and and patients as well?
0: Definitely. I think we're definitely used to knowing or... Being able to somehow find an answer for anything that we ask. And I think we're maybe not good at sitting with the uncertainty and being comfortable with that um, because we don't know what that means. But, and maybe that's maybe that's an area we need to learn to improve on is being comfortable with the unknown and being okay with not having all the answers. And maybe that's because we're so so used to planning ahead and the uncertainty it inhibits that and that's what we don't find comfortable or we don't like yeah maybe that's it
1: has there been a case that has flawed you as a person, professionally, personally, that you've had to treat, that you built a relationship with someone or that something just shocked you to your core that maybe even made you question what you do?
0: Definitely. It's very hard some days to offer the care to someone that appears to not value or can seem un grateful or has been aggressive or who takes it it's hard to look after someone that isn't appreciative that they don't value the care that they continue to be resistive to care you tr- yeah you've got them admitted you've got them you've got them there you're trying to give them the care that they need they're refusing care and that sometimes has meant that other people's admission gets delayed or their treatment gets affected not directly but in a sense that resources are used up for people that maybe aren't going to value the care that they that they're offered and that's that's hard because in the sense of it takes away resources from people that genuinely want to get better and want to want to be in hospital but it's not to say that we're we we don't want to care for some people and care for others Um, it's just trying to deal with I suppose it would be the same it's it's difficult to with teaching to um, spend a lot of resources into trying to motivate kids that don't want to be there and then sometimes you might feel guilty if you've felt like you've abandoned kids that are doing the right thing just in a comparative sense
1: so in a diplomatic way you're basically saying that there are certain people out there that probably don't look after themselves normally and then they come to hospital for those reasons and then they have an opportunity after great care and even successful treatment where they don't necessarily show value of that and then even may continue to do certain things and that could be alcohol, drugs, violent behaviour, it could be risky behaviour or it could just be that they're just eating too many packets of chips and, (laughs) you know, whatever it might be that they've got the care, they've had the treatment, they've taken the bed. I I can see that, that, you know, it's very, very difficult to weigh that up because you're there to protect and help everyone no matter what and not judging circumstance prior and I can get that out of what you're trying to say but it is frustrating yeah yeah Yeah.
0: so I don't know if they can I think they came across as very judgmental but it's it's about um seeing people not value the care that they're being offered and then they're taking up a lot of resources as well not to say that they don't deserve that at all. It's not that. Um, and it all comes down to then understanding why they might not value or what um, what's driving them to be difficult or aggressive and things like that. But sometimes it's just the forefront of things. It's hard to um, care for someone when they don't want to be cared for, essentially.
1: So do you find that in the hospital itself? So even beyond going out, oh, thanks for helping me or no, thanks for helping me, but you know, I'm better now and I'm going to go off and and be back here in three months? Or is it that when they're actually in the ward on the the bed and they're saying, I don't want help or let me out of here and you almost have to force them to receive treatment of some sort, force them to be looked after? Is that what you're more referring to as well?
0: Yeah, that's what I'm more referring to. Um, Those aggressive behaviours and sometimes it's, not actually something that a patient can control either. Uh, we see a lot of a lot of brain cancers, which changes a lot of people's behavior and capacity and things like that. So it's it's trying to manage people safely as well and give them the treatment that they need in a safe way that's going to protect yourself and your colleagues as well, um, which can be quite challenging. And the sad part of that is that we know sometimes a lot when they're disease related, these behaviors aren't someone's fault, and you can't be angry at somebody or see, yeah, it's 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 hard and it and it would be even harder to, for loved ones to see their family member or their their loved one, their friend, their behavior change, and sometimes that's hard to swallow that it's it's their disease, not their. person themselves so that's a big conversation that i've had a couple of times with with people and that can be that can be quite um tough
1: yeah i i thought that by answering that that i might find you discuss that someone that you really had an attachment with died or or, and i know that that that's probably happened but it doesn't that didn't come to mind first and foremost which means that you're almost accepting as that as part of the job is that a good way to interpret it that of course, that's going to be a part of it, but it, if anything, it might be a good thing that you've had that opportunity to find, you know, friendship and and love yeah. with someone.
0: Yeah, I'm actually glad that you've picked up on that because as tough as it is and I do take, I definitely take those um, tough times home, but I am take them home also with a bit of comfort that, I've been able to provide care for someone and be a bit of support, be there in their most vulnerable time and sometimes at their end of their life. I think the most, it was early on, so a few years ago, I had a night where this older lady passed away and I was there with her husband and we were just holding her hand as she... um, as she was dying and that experience was that that was probably my okay I really um this is really important and in a way really special work that I want to continue doing and another reason why I do love my area because I was able to to be there with someone in their worst time and be that support and I think that guy ended up saying, "I'm like one of his daughters." At that time, so people really let you into their family, really let you into their into their emotions, and um, you do a lot of our patients. We care for for a long time, so we build a lot of relationships with. And it's hard, especially when you're seeing younger people, younger people die, and people with young kids. And I think that that's really tough, but we've been able to try and help them um, and I think that's all we can take away from it and at the start it can be a very awkward experience because you know you don't know what to say but as time goes on it becomes more natural and genuine and sort of a nice experience on the most part and going back to advocacy you want to advocate for good deaths and I think that's something that we just don't talk enough about in society is that we can die much better much better one of my colleagues has just recently lost her mum um but the way that she reflects on that experience is that she had a really good death and I think well she's my colleague but she's also a very good friend of mine I think she just having her experience was probably able to be a great advocate for her mom and get the palliative care at home set up and give that opportunity. And I think, um, I just hope more people know that that's available and that's an option because I think that makes an experience for the people still here much better.
1: Thank you. That was beautiful. I think we often lose sight of the reality of life which is death sometimes and which is sadness but there is joy and and beauty and um and love and care and it's so good to have you there by the uh, by people's bedside I couldn't imagine um I I know that every nurse is great but you know if they're half as good as you they're going to be doing an amazing job I'm sure so thanks for sharing that You said you were afraid of death, and now that you've embraced it, is there something that you've learned from that other than, you know, dying with dignity, dying a good death? Is there lessons for life that you've gained from people that are dying that they've been able to pass on to you or that you've noticed?
0: Definitely. I think, and it probably sounds very cliche or I don't know, but seeing this and it becoming your everyday, involved basically in your everyday practice puts a great perspective on life so I feel like I try and be more grateful for my own life and do things that I value and that I just I try and live my life to the fullest and be be uh, a better person because of it and I think that's from the perspective into life that I experience which I'm very fortunate and grateful for even just like coming and speaking to you I think I I try to be more of a yes person really because yeah you know life is short or you don't know what's going to happen in anyone's life so I think you you see life as more of a gift so I've been thankful that I've seen that so early on and in my life basically
1: in that, I guess you, you talked about being less scared, less fearful, you know, more of a yes person, more of a, of someone that embraces the idea that, you know, death's coming along. So I better take, you know, instead of hiding away from it, burying your head in the sand, you're um, looking at it on the horizon and saying, well, I better bloody make the most of what I've got now. Cause I know it's there. But is there a tangible way that you've shifted your mind? I mean, those ideas there where you do follow your values and follow your passions and you're a yes person, but is there something that you've enacted that you may not have done without nursing?
0: Oh, I don't know. I don't know. I think um, maybe the perspective has led me to not dwell on unimportant things which may have helped maybe me be more confident person and um, do things for myself, realise what, um, who I am, which has then maybe allowed me to form really strong, good friendships and have life experiences that may not have been, I don't know, brave enough to do or um, think that I'd be capable of, even as simple as, buying a bike and starting to ride to work like my family couldn't believe that I was doing that but I thought I've got two legs I can do this (laughs) yeah to just creating my own life and my own social network here in Melbourne and um yeah I don't know I I love that I
1: love almost the simplicity of it but it's true that (laughs) uh, often I mean so many people don't ride to work and I'm I'm one of them that would think "I'll, I'll probably never ride to work but there's lots of things that I probably do now that I once thought I'd never do, and it's about creating more and more of them. Is that what you're, you're talking about when you mean perspective shifting, that it's just like why say no? Why why not give it a go? Why what exactly. I, what are I waiting for? You
0: realise that it's a mindset that blocks you. It's, um, it's our own minds that block us yeah. and limit us. So if you use that in reverse and make it as more of an empowering tool, our mind can let us do anything. So in a way, I think that that's what it's led me, led me to do.
1: I want to go back, all the way back to moving. I mean, we've spoken about <laughs> what you're doing now, but you did grow up in the country. You did grow up in a, a medium-sized town, but, you know, pretty isolated compared to what Melbourne's like. Did you find it difficult when you did that? And do you ever miss being a part of that small town or do you love being part of the thriving metropolis that is Melbourne?
0: I think regardless of that I came from a small town and moved to the metropolis um, that we call Melbourne, I think shifting and change is always something that I found hard because it's until I feel comfortable then then I'm fine. So I think... Regardless of where I moved, it was always going to be a bit of a challenge, but it's been one of the best things that I've done. Um, I do miss I miss home because that's where family is. That's where friends are. That's where where I grew up. A lot of memories are there, so I do miss and love going back home. But I also love my own. I love living where I do now, and I suppose you make anywhere your home. And... You you make it what it is with who you surround yourself with. I've got my little my Melbourne family here, so it very much feels like home. To the point that I call this home now sometimes, which is which is nice.
1: You entered nursing with the aim, first off, to to leave the small town and to to go <laughs> to the big city, and and then you fell in love with it, and you it, it you know probably couldn't see you doing anything else. So I'm sure you feel the same way about that, maybe, but. Do you think that you might bring your expertise and your skills and knowledge to a small rural town one day, whether it's your hometown or somewhere else, or do you have that in the back of your mind as something you'd like to do one day?
0: Yeah, I do. I think I would love to move away somewhere uh, a bit more quiet and with more of a community vibe somewhere that takes you five minutes to get to work or (laughs) somewhere that allows for a bit more of a, not quiet life, but a bit more of a um, peaceful life, I think. It can very much sometimes feel like a rat race here in Melbourne, which is great for now but may have its expiry date for me. So I don't know. Stay tuned.
1: (laughs) And I'm going to go off track a little bit just on a tangent. Why not? I'm the boss here, aren't I? So I can do that. You are. Um,
0: You can can control this.
1: (laughs) um, No, but I'm really interested. You, You know, how old are you now, Rachel? Uh, twenty six. Twenty six. So you're young. You're young. I'm young. I mean, I'm thirty one, but you know, (laughs) not that far apart. But there is a gap. And as a young person, what are some of your main concerns? Like, what what is it that you, you know, as a young person, there's often uncertainty. Once again, so when you look at the future, do you look at it as an optimist, as a pessimist? Do you worry about things a lot, or do you see that you know, do you think that things will pan out well and and that there is hope and goodness ahead?
0: I like to think optimistically about the future and things will work out um, not just by waiting for them, um, but I think I think I'm being lucky with my life so far that I don't have to worry too much about what the future will be, and I've got a bit of the luxury really to just take things as they come for now, which is really fortunate so that I'm aware of that. So I think even with everything going on, I'm still very optimistic about the the future and society. Maybe more so excites me that the future is unknown, which is the theme. (laughs) So, yeah, I'll just look at it as... Uh, unknown opportunities to come i don't know i'm not one to really plan out or have too far in the future plans yeah
1: i don't really know no brilliant no you know you you know that you don't know (laughs) yeah (laughs) (laughs) which is good before we finish up i do want to go back a little bit to something that you said that's just popped back in my mind, which was that you constantly were asking about what people's ideas of what death would be like were, yeah. you know, that you were almost obsessed with it because of fear, but wanted to know, and and maybe wanted an answer as to what it would be like. What is your thought on death now? What is your thought on, I know you said earlier that dying with with dignity and grace and, and dying a good death is really important, but does the question of what happens after enter your mind anymore
0: to be honest not really actually and the fact and it's it's probably because i don't this is a bit dark but i don't actually believe that there is anything afterwards and i'm very much accepting of that so that i'm i'm not i'm not scared of that really now i come to think of it
1: How did you get to that point? Did you, because did you believe in God or an afterlife or a heaven and a hell when you were a kid? Were you brought up in that way?
0: Yeah, I think I was brought up in a very much Catholic upbringing, Catholic primary school, Catholic high school. Um, You know, you die, you go to heaven, even the bad people will meet you there. And I think religion is maybe something I've very much debated As I've gotten older, but now I feel like I've sort of done a full 360 on it. um, Where I used to be maybe a bit of bit anti-religious for a bit, but now I'm very much I just value more people's faith and their hope and everything that religions bring, and can really see that that is a major source of strength for people as well I often used to fight about religion with with mum um she's quite um she's quite catholic and now I look back and I'm like why did I do that um because it's something that you can debate but you can't ever deny the faith and the hope that it brings people which is quite a beautiful thing but in terms of death in a religious sense. I think it's more the, the hope and the, the comfort that um, religious teachings provide about the death about death. but again, it's something that no one knows. hey and I think I'm comfortable in knowing that we don't know the answer to it. I'm not convinced um, that um, we're go to heaven or that we're reincarnated or anything but we're just we're just here on this earth living at the moment and then um, what happens afterwards, no one knows.
1: Yeah, brilliant. I think I had a similar journey there. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's good to hear, you know, that idea of being almost faithfully, like blind faith, you just believe what you've yeah. been told, into debating, yeah. questioning it, realising it, that it doesn't quite make sense compared to a lot of the other things I've learnt. Attacking it, you know, probably being against it, which is natural, in, I think, for younger people to to do with anything that maybe was was just taught to them and then coming up the other end and, and realising that there are so many great things that come from faith and, and spirituality and um, even sometimes routine and ritual. But Yeah, I think, yeah, um, and the
0: community, yeah, the and, spirit, and, yeah. everything. It's, it's, it's such a beautiful thing really.
1: And if you take away the supernatural and the, the weird and ridiculous, um, it's a beautiful <laughs> thing. It's probably better than the opposite, having nothing. Um, exactly. there but exactly. yeah have you had a, a wide cross section of beliefs of that people display in your care that have helped you change your mind and become more open
0: definitely and I think that's what has that's what has um, changed my mind and that was probably what I needed to see and just realize that it's it's bigger than it's bigger than the literal teachings and everything like that in a simple sense and it's it's sometimes all the people have so to debate that and to knock that down is I'm ashamed that I used to debate things you know like just yeah so I think you can't deny the the strength that it gives people and the hope and the love that it gives people as well mm. yeah
1: final question for you Rachel it is the name of the podcast, Moments of Clarity. <laughs> have you had a moment of clarity recently, uh, whether in this conversation or in your normal day-to-day life?
0: I have. And I suppose I was sort of prepared for this question because wasn't going to be a shock. But now I want to change my preempted answer to that everything, we operate in such an unknown, in unknown territories. And I think i feel like I'm okay with accepting that, but um, I'd like to work more on just being content with that. And maybe that's something that a lot of us need to work on—is being content with um, not having all the answers to life, because that's that's keeps popping up. That there's a lot of there's a lot of unknown, and you can either let that. Um, drive you into anxiety and despair or you can sit with it and see it as a opportunity for anything to happen
1: love it thank you so much for joining me rachel it's been awesome
0: (laughs) thanks matt it's been so good to um to not only talk to you but also catch up and hear from you so thanks for having me
1: If you enjoyed the conversation today, please subscribe, share with your friends and family and leave a review. If you would like to contact me, provide feedback or have access to someone you believe could be a great guest on the podcast, you can contact me on Instagram or Facebook at Moments of Clarity Podcast or on Twitter at Barney MOC. You can also email me on Moments of Clarity Podcast at gmail.com. My name is Barney and thank you for joining me on Moments of Clarity.